Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to our podcast Books and Beyond with Bound. A podcast where we interview India's best writers on their creative process. We've had a great season 1 where we interviewed our dream writers like Manu Pillai, Booker Longlisted author Avni Doshi, Arsha Sattar and many many more. And we have over 17k downloads and counting. We could never have imagined that we would have such a great response for our podcast. So thank you all our listeners and we are so excited to be back with season 2. And we are kicking off season 2 with the fascinating Ira Mukherjee. I really can't believe that we actually spoke to her Tara. She is the author of Heroines, Daughters of the Sun and Akbar. Yeah, and she is known for her fascination with historical women and she brings alive characters that you wouldn't even know have existed. Yeah, Tara, and I think for me the you know best part about the episode is how you know all three of us love stories written by women, and you know we have to admit you know had we uh, grown up with such stories, you know stories about such strong uh, female characters, our world would have been you know so different. And I loved how we discussed that with Ira, and so much more. And she also told us about her next book, and I just can't resist reading it. You know, whenever it's out. Yeah and you know as somebody who's interested in history there were certainly so many different historical tidbits to just think about and immerse yourself into a new world so how does she do all of this let's find out so we are really excited to talk to Ira Mukherti today she's a writer of historical non-fiction and she's written three critically acclaimed books Heroines Daughters of the Sun and Akbar welcome Ira thank you so much i'm so happy to be here with you today So welcome Ira we're very very excited to have you on we have a whole host of questions and congratulations on releasing a book during a pandemic <laughs> yes <laughs> it wasn't intentional believe me <laughs> so yeah i i we have questions about that yeah. uh, but you know before that what what i think michelle and i both really loved is the portrayal of women in um, you know in your books right. and so we wanted to know you know uh there's so much available on the mughals which is you know to the subject of two of your books yes. but what made you decide to you know choose mughal women as a subject for the book especially daughters of the sun yeah well um it's there in all walks of life whether in the scientific community the literary one artists have been written out of history uh, women artists i mean so you know it is a real problem in the way we depict women's voices and i had found that when i was writing my first book you know heroines uh, and there i came across the story of jahanara begum shah jahan's uh, daughter who was extraordinary in many different ways i think we'll get the chance to speak about her later but that's when i realized that the certain notion that i had in my mind of mughal women which was really a, a result of let us say a post colonial construct which is that the mughal women were in this fixed space a closed space they were degraded they spent all their time trying to beautify themselves uh, they were barely literate perhaps nor didn't control much didn't have much influence this idea that i had vaguely in my mind of what mughal women were was something completely false and it had been handed down to us to you know through our colonial experience in the way that the, the british and the europeans wrote about uh, muslim women in general uh, so when i realized that uh, right in the, first through jahanara begum's story and then later on i stumbled across the work of ruby lal you know the academic who has written uh, a groundbreaking work on the early mughal women 
Uh, and that's when I realized that there was something potentially very exciting here to do, to really challenge the notion that people had of the sort of influence and power that Mughal women had. Uh, and so I thought it might even, uh, you know, be something that I could talk about right from the first uh, women who came along with Babur, right to the end of the so-called great Mughals uh, of Aurangzeb, and thereby depict a changing harem, uh, you know, a harem which wasn't static, because till then, even when we have recordings of later historians, let us say modern day historians, when they do talk about the Zanana in a much more nuanced way and a much more layered way, it is still a static phenomenon. So we will often have a book on all the great Mughals. And at the end, you will have one chapter on the Zanana. And, you know, everything is described in that one chapter, what the clothes were like, what the jewelry was like, you know, what uh, activities they carried out. But there's no sense of a vibrant, changing space. Uh, you know, how could women have been the same in 200 years of history? Uh, this was clearly something which was uh, which had been simplified. And that interested me. What were the women like who accompanied Babur on horseback? What happened to them? How did they become a more uh, sedate and sedentary space? And how after that did they manage nonetheless to ex you know, exercise their amazing influence through the reigns of Shah Jahan and then how they slowly got written out of the stories at the time of Aurangzeb. So this is this entire changing cycle of women's influence that I wanted to bring out in Daughters of the Sun. Yeah, and I think you do that really, really well. I mean, the way that you bring out these characters is just fantastic. I mean, there's so many stories that, you know, you can delve into and things that I never knew. And I'm sure even Michelle didn't know. Uh, Michelle, which was your favorite character? Yeah, so my favorite character was Hamida Banu, Tara, and I really like the friendship between her and Gulbadan. Right, yes. That's yeah, they were BFFs. They were, <laughs> they were BFFs. Yeah. And they had a very long life. They lived together till the end of their lives, you know, just a few years short of Akbar's demise, in fact. So you're, you're right, that's a very interesting not only Hamida Banu and herself, but her relationship with Gulbadan and how we are able to access. Hamida Banu's voice through Gulbadan's writing. And Gulbadan is a fantastic writer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the dialogue yeah. that you quote from her yeah. is fantastic. And for, yeah. for those uh, of our listeners who don't know, yeah. uh, she's the aunt of Akbar and she's actually the daughter of Babur. And Correct. what I found very, very interesting was, you know, she, along with the whole troop of these women, went on a seven-year-old hard journey all on yes, their own. That's you know? right. Um, so it's just fantastic. So what is that, you know, one interesting incident that you found about her that was that really struck you? Unfortunately, Gulbadan didn't write much about herself. Uh, you know, she was told by Akbar, please write everything you remember about your father and your brother, Babur and Humayun, uh, so that we can write a wonderful history. So she did not think it uh, right to write about herself, uh, but she writes about some of the other ladies. And uh, one incident that she writes about with a lot of, I don't know if it's intentional humor, but I found it you know, very funny, was about uh, Bega Begum. And one day she is uh, you know, grumbling to Humayun because he hasn't come to see him. Bega Begum was Humayun's first wife, his senior wife. Uh, so she's grumbling to him and saying, you know, uh, why do you go and see your aunts and your sisters and you don't come to see me first? You know, uh, I've been waiting for you for many days. Uh, and he's very annoyed and he goes away. And when he comes back, he asks all the ladies of the harem to write him an apology letter, you know, so it shows this unusual side of Humayun too. And he said, all of you must write. I am very sorry for, you know, uh, questioning Humayun. Next time you have a, a problem with me, please put it in writing. 
And uh, you know that I am an opium, a user of opium, and sometimes, uh, you know, I behave erratically. So I found this, uh, this very refreshing to see this side of the harem, this sort of familial interaction between his wife, Humayu, the aunts, the sisters, and how it's all very open and Gulbuddin finds nothing wrong in re- recording these things, you know, and later biographers, when they write things, they, they sort of curate their writing so much more, but hers is so refreshing and honest. But as for Gulbuddin, what is most extraordinary for me in her life, as you say, is this Hajj, because it's all in all from start to finish, it lasts for seven whole years. And uh, these women are essentially unchaperoned. There's only one man with them. And all the others are women. And they're all royal women associated with the harem in some way. And they go off on their own on this extremely dangerous journey in the 16th century. It was extremely dangerous. Uh, and uh, in fact, we are told that Gulbadan, when she goes to 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 perform the Hajj, uh, she gives away so much money in donation, in robes of honor that Akbar has sent with her, that the Ottoman authorities who are in charge of organizing the Hajj are actually taken aback. And they write letters uh, to, uh, to uh, the Sharif of Mecca and they say, please send back these Hindustani ladies. They are creating too much commotion and fury in the holy city. There are too many beggars coming for arms and we want them out of here. So basically, in a way, they felt, I think, challenged by the you know wealth of this new empire, this Mughal empire. And when they come back to India, uh, Gulbadan, no doubt, tells Akbar about all this. And he is very annoyed after this with the Ottoman authorities. And he discontinues the Hajj, uh, for, I think, for the rest of his reign. And it is only um, after him, during Jahangir's time, that it is reinstated, the annual Hajj journey. Yeah, and what we found really fascinating, Ira, is that, you know, you managed to create this world for your readers that nobody ever knew of. <laughs> you know, like neither Tara and I knew that this harem, uh, you know, existed with such vibrant in female characters. Um, So, you know, we were curious that, you know, out of all these lovely women whom you've chronicled, you know, uh, is there one uh, woman that really stood out to you and that you absolutely adore? I have to say that the one who has stayed with me longest uh, is Jahanara Begum, you know, the one I mentioned in the beginning, Shah Jahan's eldest daughter. Uh, And I would say uh, that she has stayed with me because of the, you know, the vast sort of reach of her ambition um she does so many extraordinary things in her life she builds part of old delhi here shah jahanabad uh, old delhi as it's called now and in addition to this she was a sufi a follower of the sufi order she was uh, she considered herself a sufi murid and she wrote two biographies which for the 17th century uh, for a muslim woman were pretty you know extraordinary things to do and jahanara writes about this and the writing that she, she has left us in it she clearly says because her her peer tells her that actually because you are a woman you can never attain that sort of uh, you know status uh, of being a sufi leader let us say and she writes in her in her book uh, that somebody who has attained a certain level of uh, spiritual excellence, you cannot call them a man or a woman. They are equal in the eyes of God. And when I read those lines, you know, it almost gave me goosebumps because I thought, my goodness, in the 17th century, this Mughal woman is able to lay claim to the same spiritual, uh, you know, destiny as Dara Shiko and even as Shah Jahan. She mentions Shah Jahan's name. So you can see that this is not just an innocent thing that she does, her spiritual journey. It is laying claim to being, uh, you know, a descendant of Timur, of being worthy of that name, of being uh, someone almost, I would say, equal to her brother, Darashiko. She has the command of so much uh, influence and power, and she leaves a legacy that is so extraordinary and which we have almost completely forgotten today. So she is somebody who really stays with me, and I think of her from time to time. 
it's amazing that you bring all of these women to life and i just feel that we need more female role models so thank you so much for uncovering these thank stories you. i mean it's just fantastic to know that you know i mean women like these existed way back when and Correct. they've been asserting their power for so long yes. um what struck me about the book um, akbar was also that that you see that influence you see your point of view you see the influence of women um in akbar scott which i think that maybe a male writer would not have done so um it's more of a two part question the yeah. first is what was the progression you know yes. uh from daughters of the sun Correct. to akbar yeah. and then uh, we'll speak a little more about the women in akbar right. right you know when uh, you study the moguls like i did with daughters of the sun um Akbar is this you know talismanic figure he's really uh, some like a colossal and you cannot get away uh, you know from the influence of Akbar like uh, post Akbar there are always references to the Akbar institutes in religion in statecraft uh, in the buildings in the miniature paintings uh, you know so in many many ways we refer back to Akbar so he's a fascinating figure for anybody who you know start reading a little bit about uh, the Mughals Uh, another thing which drew me to him was this fact that we have touched upon a little bit in the beginning is that he is extremely progressive in his views about women there are certain things that he says about uh, women which show him to be extremely empathetic to their cause to their vulnerability and he criticizes both islam and hinduism uh, in their attitudes towards women uh, whether it is about sati whether it is about not allowing uh, widows to remarry whether in islam it is about uh, the laws of inheritance which favor boys he is highly critical of these things so it shows a man who is really in advance of his age and his time and yet at the same time as i had mentioned uh, i found that really it was the akbari ladies his wives who were compared to the earlier and even the later moguls they were invisible so it sort of you know it created this sense of dichotomy and uh, it led to a certain questioning for me that what happened around the time of akbar what was his huge influence in this 50 years of his reign in today's day where everybody everything tends to be a little binary tends to be weaponized people you know take history and they can twist it and manipulate it i thought well let's go back to say almost the basics of mughal history you know akbar and study him and bring him out in a way that is accessible for people and then people can make up their minds uh, what they want to think of akbar what they want to make of the man but let's reclaim these important figures of our history so that there's no danger of them slipping into somebody's you know a grasp who may use the, these figures for for whatever purpose um, you know and so i think it's it's an interesting exercise to look back and uh, you know critically reexamine these lives would the book be very different if it was written by you know a man or somebody who did not have your point of view yeah so that's an interesting question you know i that's also a very complex question you know will women necessarily write history differently i i don't know what i do know is that from the time of heroines I, you know i'm very aware of the erasure of women's voices so it is definitely something that i will always set out to do you know in whatever i do i want to see where the women are i want to see where they have been removed and whether there's a way of bringing that back in now i don't know uh, if it is only because i am a woman like the other writers like manu manu pillai does this as well yeah that that actually reminds us uh, you know of our recording with manu pillai and arsha sattar you know very similar 
kind of writing and such fascinating stories. Correct. So I think it is a sensitivity more than the gender. It's, you know, how you are thinking about history, how you have or the reading you have done and the sort of awareness. Um, so it is also a, a movement that there is about what do we define as history? What constitutes history? You know, is it only to do with battles? Is it only to do with land acquisition uh, about territorial expansion? Or can we really ex- expand that notion? Because who has d- well, created those definitions in the first place? Can it be more about, uh, you know, producing children, producing a home, uh, language, culture, dance? You know, so if you expand what you consider to be a historical process, then little by little, uh, you will be bringing in a a greater number of actors as well. So I think it is more uh, the sort of background with which you're approaching your work, which will determine the sort of history you write, uh, more than just depending on one's gender. Yeah, so Ira, uh, you know, what we really uh, liked is how you took the plunge with Akbar because, you know, your first two <laughs> books are, uh, you know, very female-centric. Yes. So uh, if we talk about the creative process, did it change much for you while you were writing Akbar? Yes, I, Akbar was very different. Um, you know, with the first two books, which were really uh, almost solely centered on women, one of my uh, the challenges was finding primary sources, you know, finding that information. It wasn't easily available. It is there. You know, people will often say, oh, there's nothing on women. That's absolutely not true. That information is there. But it sort of lies in a fragmented state, if you like, you know. So you have to really set out to look for it. I told, uh, you know, another person who was talking to me about it that I felt like a medieval detective when I was working on the women. So I would look at architecture. I would look at inscriptions on architecture. I would look at miniature paintings. I would tie the two together. I would look for a little sermon that one woman may have written so it was really this process of almost archaeological digging up of sources, you know, to have enough material to write. Uh, with Akbar, it was almost the exact opposite. You know, there was a tsunami of information that I had because he is one of the most written about, uh, you know, uh, actors in our history. In his own time, he had, uh, you know, biographies commissioned for himself. So they are the Persian language sources. There were the European sources because this was the time at which the Europeans started landing on the shores of Hindustan looking for trade. So they also started writing about this. And then we have the Jesuit missionaries who come at exactly this time, you know, from 1580 onwards. Yeah, Iran, actually, you know, that is what we really like about the book, that there are so many perspectives, right, Tara? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I just love the, I know I'm hopping on about it a lot, but I just love the way that you've woven, you know, the influence of women into this, because that's something for me that I never, ever thought of before. And there's so much, as you said, about Akbar, um, and you really brought it to light in a fresh way. Thank you. So what we found actually, uh, you know, with Akbar is that there were a huge number of, because he, you know, his reign was 50 years and his uh, matriarchs were around for a very long time. So there were very many layers of influence. Uh, they were not just, uh, you know, his Rajput wives, which were, uh, you know, a significant portion of his uh, life and influence, but there were his uh, Amida Banu, his mother, his aunt, Gulbadan, Salima Sultan Begum, his other wife. Um, so there were all these ladies from the earlier times, you know, from the uh, Babur and Humayun's legacy. And then we have the milk mothers who are sometimes forgotten, but, uh, you know, who are I- extensively involved. Uh, in uh, Akbar's childhood, especially when his parents have to abandon him almost for two years. And that influence continues right through his reign. Uh, And then we have uh, also, 
uh, at the end, uh, the way in which he treats his, his daughters, which I thought was also extraordinary. You know, in today's day and age, when we still have to say, Beti Padao, Beti, you know, Bachao, here was an uh, emperor, you know, in the 16th century who said, and Abu al-Fazl noted it down, that when his daughters were born, he made it a point that their celebrations were just as extravagant, you know, to celebrate their birth as that for a son. And even today, that strikes a chord in India because, you know, we are so reluctant to celebrate daughters the way we would a son. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as females, we could, uh, you know, really uh, relate. And, you know, it makes us wonder, Ira, like you have so much of information. Is there a way that you mark out, you know, bits which are absolutely fascinating and some which are, you know, just facts? But yeah, I mean, you have to include them. Do you have a way? Uh, well, you know, uh, that's the kind of key thing, uh, because, uh, of course, it's important to get the information across. Of course, there are some uh, things which cannot be left out, uh, no matter how, you know, they may not seem that interesting, but they are very much part of the story. And at the same time, at least for me, uh, you know, I'm a storyteller. So I want to engage the the reader from the word go and I want to hold their attention. Uh, so it is a real challenge. Uh, to keep the two in balance, you know, to keep the storytelling going. And um, the storytelling, it goes from the level of the chapter to the, the level of the, you know, the subchapters, uh, then to the sections, and finally, the, the overall arc of the book. So in the beginning, I have, a once I've read everything, I've got all my information together, I have the structure very clearly made, you know, I know what will hold a person's interest, what are the key events I want to talk to grab their interest, and to keep them going. So these are the key events, uh, key scenes, you know, right through the book. And within those key moments and scenes, I'm going to have, uh, you know, more facts and more figures, hopefully put in a way that, you know, doesn't distract from the arc of the narrative, because both are equally important. I wish we had been taught history like that in yeah. school, you know, rather than the plain facts and figures. And I feel Absolutely. like there's a lot of um, storytelling that's happening now. So there somebody is. like me, I, yeah, I love history, yeah. you know, so, like, you know, I've read your books and Manu's books. Yes. And so <laughs> if I'm actually, you know, relearning everything that I learned yeah. in school and yeah. adding so much more depth. Um, and I really, really like that. But I'm interested to know, you know, I know that you started writing uh, sort of, you mentioned in other interviews as an accident because yes. you wanted to sort of give, uh, you know, female role models in history to your daughters. Yes. You wanted to introduce your daughters. But I want to know, uh, were you always interested in history? Like, were you interested in history as a, as a child or, you know, because it's something to stick to it. You yes. Know? Yeah. No, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, my experience of history in school was uh, was quite uninspiring and I, I really didn't take to it much at all. Um, I always liked uh, English and writing. So writing is something that I've always liked to do, that I've always wanted to do. But, you know, when at my time when I was in school, if you were a good student, you were pushed to the sciences automatically. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you were like literature, forget about it, you know. <laughs> so unfortunately, um, so then I actually am a scientist by training. Uh, and uh, I did that for a little while, but it really just didn't uh, hold my, my interest. And then when I wanted to get back to writing, it was therefore entirely accidental that it became um, history writing. You know, it was just the way in which I met an editor, the ideas they gave me and uh, their suggestions, really. But I could have just been a writer of fiction as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it is. So so talking about uh, fiction, Ira, yeah. are you planning anything? <laughs> and because, you know, one thing that I really liked about your book, you know, being a fiction writer myself, yeah. 
um i was you know looking for these storytelling uh, techniques the yeah. way you have uh, you know carved out the character of akbar oh my god so <laughs> lovely uh, so you know i think you do have fiction in you so are you planning anything sometimes i think you know that um, i would like to just get away from the tyranny of uh, end notes and book notes and uh, bibliography you know and have the freedom to write fiction so sometimes Uh, there is that yearning because i'm first and foremost a storyteller uh, you know and uh, second a writer of history so uh, sometimes i feel that but it's been so extraordinary because there's stories in indian history i mean where am i going to get that this is game of thrones all over again right so where am i going to get such extraordinary stories you know just in my imagination so i've just become uh, hooked to history in a way in a way in which to write my stories so perhaps So yeah Ira we are really uh, you know looking forward to a novel written by you and uh, we are sure that it will be as fascinating as you know your history books um, you know so as a writer Ira I'm curious you know what came before heroines so you know I'm really fascinated with what happens behind the scenes and before mm-hmm. like your first work is ever published so was there anything written before that Uh yes in fact uh there is a manuscript which is a work of mythology because uh I began to be interested in uh in the myths in our great myths you know um the mahabharat essentially and I came across uh, Iravati Karve's work you know about her essays on the women of the mahabharat and that fascinated me uh because it's just in my family you know we've been kind of interested in the stories of krishna in 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 that whole mythology my daughters are called yashoda and devaki so uh you know i thought uh, let us i was interested in digging a little deeper and uh, you know there was clearly uh, scholars had done work where uh, where they showed that the mahabharat was written over many hundreds of years and there is an essential earlier core if you like uh, which is quite different from the later layers of the brahmanical writings and so i got into that for a few years and i have a manuscript which deals with all the women uh, of the mahabharat well, not all but like some 15 odd women of the mahabharat you know starting from ganga and satyavati right down to kunti and all the rest uh, so what happened what what happened to that manuscript <laughs> it's <laughs> there <laughs> it's there and it'll be published next year hopefully oh wow <laughs> oh, that, that, that's absolutely fantastic yeah, you know that's, yeah. that's amazing and yeah. I, i can't wait for that yeah. i mean i also i love um, you know history and also mythology something that fascinates yeah. me a lot right um, right And you know a very interesting thing that uh, you know before this podcast Michelle and I were talking um, we talked about the Akbar Birbal stories <laughs> and how that's sort of the point of contact you yes. know for uh, the mythological or maybe folk tale way of you know getting in touch and you know understanding yes. a bit more about Akbar but yeah. we wanted to know and I think Michelle <laughs> you also were reading some stories recently yeah yeah and and I was actually reading them in Hindi you know I really enjoy uh, Hindi and I wanted to get in touch with it and oh my god the stories are hilarious <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah so we want to know you know what is the real story of Akbar and Birbal so you know uh, there's a scholar called uh, C.M. Naim who's who's done a, a lot of work on uh, Akbar Birbal on the stories in fact on on what lies behind it is it true is it not true so he's written a very interesting essay on this and he has basically said that the king jester genre is one which has existed in literature in history in many countries and the Akbar Birbal stories are basically an enactment of that basic genre and um 
the actual stories which are you know which are described and so many of them are based on puns or you know uh, uh, jeu de mots and just word play uh, um, for example i just i was rereading his essay the other day and he says that there's one scene in which um, uh, birbal and akbar are uh, you know on a boat together and a string of pearls falls into the into the river and akbar says to birbal uh mala de which could either mm. be mala de do you know give me back the the the, the necklace or ma la de you know which is bring me my mother and yeah so nuanced nuanced <laughs> right and <laughs> really enjoy and, that yeah and apparently birbal answers and said behne do which we can either mean let it float away or behen de do you know, give, back, <laughs> give me your sisters <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a naughty and cheeky thing to say and uh, but basically this scholar cm nayam says that it is a genre there's he has examined many of these stories and he has found no truth no recording in the persian uh, you know contemporary writing of uh, any of these uh, popular stories oh so it's just for entertainment it is for entertainment oh. and it is also almost a subversive genre you know it is a way for people almost uh to identify with birbal and to in a way push back against the might of the mughal empire because when you are faced with this very mighty empire you know people talk and there's gossip and there are stories told and it is a way for you to subvert uh the influence and also to humanize the emperor which could be this larger than life figure but having said that birbal was absolutely a real person and uh, you know he came to the court very early on in akbar's career and he Akbar grew very fond of him very quickly he was this br- uh, brahman called mahesh das and he was very quickly given the title kavirai so clearly he had something of the poet in him he was able to conduct a uh, uh, repartee you know verbal repartee very easily very charmingly and this was something that akbar you know appreciated a great deal and so uh, birbal was able to become very close to akbar and badauni who was always grumbling about the influence of hindus he writes and says uh, because of his genius birbal was able to become very close to akbar and it became a case of my flesh is thy flesh and my blood is thy blood so that shows how close the two men were and uh, you know birbal stayed at court mostly akbar did not send him away uh you know away from him for for a long time and he never chastised him uh, it was very common for all the great courtiers to be regularly punished and put in their place for any small misdemeanor but there were only three men who were never punished one was tansen one was fezi the poet and one the third one was birbal so it says quite a lot about this man who was constantly in akbar's company yeah such a deep friendship you know it comes across in the stories that's right it was really a friendship that cheered up akbar a lot you know he was a melancholy he was uh, he bouts he had bouts of melancholy he could be depressed and i think the presence of birbal was this light and you know just this wonderful present that kept him happy yeah so we were speaking to manu pillai who also yes. came on our podcast yes. and he was talking about how he enters these research cycles yes so what kind of you know uh, like what's your research process and is there a particular method of research that you like over others um so the the process i think is because i've heard manu describe his and it is pretty similar you know we write a similar sort of history uh, so it is a few years of research where we might go to the archives we will go to the library a lot to access the you know primary sources uh, the internet luckily has brought a lot of information to us as well so that research cycle can last from months to years depending of course on the scale of the book 
Uh, and in that, you just basically just skim and skim and skim through books and take notes of what is of interest to you. Uh, at least that is that's the way I, I do it. And for me, somehow the only way I can do it is all or nothing, you know. So it, it takes over my life and I think about it even when I'm walking. Uh, you know, the scenes are playing out in my mind. I'm putting uh, bits of information together. Because what I like is finding rhythm and patterns to stories. You know, it's not just relating one thing after another. It's what is the pattern that runs through somebody's story or, or what is the intricate design that I can bring out by, you know, by layering several uh, threads together. So it is something that sticks over my life. And then once I have that information, then it's the actual working on the writing process and structuring the book and and the chapters and, and starting the writing process, which is, relatively speaking, I would say about half another half uh, amount of time safe. So if I've taken two years on research, it can take two years on the writing. Yeah. So, Ira, um, you know, we uh, as writers, we all go through these phases where we <laughs> yes. have this self-doubt, you know, eating us up from inside. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Ira, you know, what is your, uh, you know, process like? Like, how do you uh, deal with this, uh, you know, bouts of self-doubt? Self-doubt. Do you deal with self-doubt? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really funny question. I think every writer is racked by self-doubt. At least I know I am. And I have to say that a source for me of great uh, you know, wisdom and comfort um, has been uh, the the writing community, the you know the history writers community, if you like, and this is what I have missed because of Akbar coming out in pandemic. Is usually at this time I would be out, uh, you know, uh, maybe giving talks, maybe the literature festivals would be beginning the season, and that's where I would meet not just the readers, but what is very important is the community, you know, the community of writers. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know community uh, matters a lot for you know creative uh, people and like writing in history is quite a rare and quite still a small genre in India. So, you know, what is the community like, Ira? Like, do you all depend on each other or how, you know, how does it work? Depend, well, you know, it is how you, um, you know, as a person, how you function, how much you need, uh, you know, feedback from people. Uh, for me, the you know, reaching out to community has been very important. I must say it is a small community. Uh, you know, it is just the infancy of history writing in India. That's why I would tell any listener that if they're interested, they should, uh, you know, run with it because there's a lot to be done. Uh, so the, the community is small, but it is growing year by year. You know, every year, every new festival I go to, there are new faces, there are new writers. There are many women, which is a, an amazing thing, the many women writers of history. Uh, which can, I feel, only be a good thing. Um, and so there's that sense of, um, you know, like-minded people who know exactly what you're talking about, where you're coming from. Uh, and we immediately get into conversations about writing and the research process. Yeah, yeah. And, I, yeah. you know, send my work to, uh, you know, a few close friends, beta readers, and I really trust yeah. them because they know my work. You know, I, right. I feel that when feedback comes from someone who knows your work closely, it helps. Yeah. Uh, what about helps. you, Tara? Like, I would like to know about your community, you know, as an entrepreneur. Well, well, I'm not a writer, you know, so uh, I don't have a writing community per se. Uh, but, you know, I do work as an editor and obviously, you know, I'm interested in entrepreneurship. So I have a few mentors um, who I go to regularly who, you know, have worked in similar fields. And I think for me, that really helps me uh, rather than, you know, having a community is that mentorship sort of 
um to you know give me new perspective and ideas so yeah you know what you're saying about you know community and female role models i think that's so important yeah absolutely so ira uh, were there any books that you know you were reading while writing this i mean apart from the research you know something to give you a direction as to you know how to craft it uh, you know style wise like were there any books that influenced you um uh, yes for stylistic uh, influences um there are certain works there is joan didion's work which i love her essays I, yeah i love joan didion yeah i exactly i love her too and i think her style you know just the, the way she uses words with such efficacy such care you know i really like that so she has helped me a lot in that sense um and then uh, i also even though she writes historical fiction uh, and not non fiction i do like hilary mantel because she uh the, you know even though her conversation her dialogues are created but her uh, her world her textual world the you know the what people are wearing what they're eating all that is heavily researched and she brings that to life in an extraordinary way so ira do you read uh, so i know you uh, you must be reading a lot outside the genre so mm-hmm. you know what are some books that you're reading for fun uh, you know and maybe any fiction recommendation yeah i read a lot of fiction as well i read a lot of literary fiction because i like to read good language you know it helps me as well um so what would i recommend have any of you read helen garner's work it's not no no, no haven't okay, yet okay you then you yeah. must run and read because it is not fiction she's actually uh, a journalist but the way in which she writes about the, the the great cases in australia and she gets into the human side of it and why have people done certain things it they are really extraordinary books so there's this book which she's written called in this house of grief which is absolutely you know a shining example of her genre um then i like chimamanda aditi a lot i like her oh, writing I, lo- i love her writing yeah yeah, yeah i like uh, helen mcdonald you know h is for hawk i thought that was brilliant uh, lisa moore i like her work as well um so a lot of even though there isn't a certain type i find that without meaning to do it i have been attracted in the last 10 years i think uh, 90% of the books i read are books by women authors and i it is not at all something that i choose to do it is the ones that i am drawn to you know actually you know it's really funny somebody recently asked me you know what kind of books you read and then i went over sort of the books that i've read in the last few months yeah and i also inadvertently <laughs> only pick up books which have female protagonists <laughs> protagonist, yeah. you know <laughs> yeah or like yeah. it's such a subconscious like, thing yeah subconscious mm-hmm. completely yeah <laughs> i don't know why but i mean i just don't find myself as interested in yes. uh, you know books with strong male characters maybe exactly. i'm seeking it out um you know but that's very interesting and it's it nice interesting to know that, you know? yeah maybe as you get older you have just less tolerance for things that you don't relate to anymore maybe you know uh, and i just like uh, getting into a very intense uh, gaze on a, you know maybe it can even be a very small family drama you know but very intensely looking at that but the female gaze the right the female <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. and and so, you know and now i mean i just love the contemporary fiction scene you oh, know yes. uh, yeah yeah oh, and yes. and tara and i like you know absolutely loved this book uh, my sister the serial killer and then oh, you know oh i haven't read that oh yeah and then convenience store woman i mean there are so many books so, coming out yeah. right now by female yeah. writers that are, are so much fun yeah, absolutely there's this book that i read um uh, uh, have you guys heard of cortis sitton field no 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 
so she so uh, i've been following her for um, you know she's been writing for the past 10 to 15 years okay and she i recently read a book uh, which is a fiction it's called an american wife and it's a fictionalized version of laura bush's life oh. and i read it i read it after i read uh, michelle obama's becoming because i got very interested in the lives of right. girls yeah so that was that was a very very interesting that sounds interesting uh, i'd highly recommend it yeah i think the literary yeah. scene is changing for the better very yes. happy about it yes yes <laughs> speaking of uh, you know uh, characters and characters we like and all of those things you write so many characters obviously you excavate so many details but you know i'm sure that you know as a writer maybe do you have biases or do you like certain characters over another and, and how do you filter out that bias when you're yeah, writing that is a good question you know because much as we like to stick to the truth and that is a you know a writer's job and especially a writer of history um it's inevitable you know you are after all the product of your upbringing your culture your education it's impossible not to have any bias whatsoever you know and i think the key is to even when you have a bias when you come across a fa- something you have to check it against facts you know you have to keep fact checking yourself and saying okay i'm going down this road am i sure that this is what's happened uh and i remember one uh reviewer of um i think heroines had said that you know they'd been very favorable but they said there are no negative shades to these characters and they seem uh you know too positive only and i took that to heart and i said yes because uh, that was my first uh, well published book and i think i was really in love with each and every of those eight characters and i did not want to see anything terribly negative about that about each person so i made a conscious effort and i was like i am going to look at people putting my judgment aside and trying to see them as flawed human beings and from daughters of the sun onwards i tried to do that uh, to a much greater extent so yeah ira you know uh, i read the article in scroll about releasing a book in the pandemic my sad story <laughs> and no but it was you know because the pandemic has really put a pause in everybody's lives yes. and you know so how yeah. and it's interesting to hear how different people deal with it in a different ways but what yes. struck me most was that you know you wrote akbar um, you know and you envisioned your reader uh to read it as a physical book yes uh, but now we have to traverse to it as an ebook so yeah. when you were writing akbar uh, how, how did you imagine a reader would uh, you know go through the book and digest all this information yes yes so you know that uh, was a huge challenge i would say it was my number one challenge because i am writing primarily for lay audience you know i am not writing for the academics who already know a lot of the, this material uh, so for a lay audience my problem was how do i get uh, a 50 year reign plus the 20 years before that that i want to talk about how do i get all this information in a way that will hold their interest uh, and so i had the system where in my mind there were six large phases which were almost self contained you know which they have about uh, on average 8 to 10 chapters uh, in each section and each of these section covers about 10 to between 8 and 12 years of akbar's life and they are self contained in the sense that you can read just those chapters and leave it aside for a while because something momentous has happened in those 8 to 10 to 12 years so i thought this would be useful so that people could take a break and not feel that they have to read akbar in one sitting you get enough of a sense of the person evolving in those 8 to 10 chapters and then you can stop and come back and you still know what's happening you can still pick up the story you don't feel like you have to go back and refresh yourself yeah 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 the sections really work 
Yeah. So I'm glad they work. And in fact, it was important for me to imagine the reader with this book in their hand so that they could refer back to the images, but also to the cast of characters, because God knows there are many characters in this book. And sometimes I would get confused, you know. So it's useful to be able to also go back to the cast of characters, who is married to who, who is whose son or daughter, how does this happen, you know, <laughs> the marriages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and for me, Ira, you know, like I really loved how accessible it is, you know, because yeah. I'm not really, uh, you know, history reader, you know, unlike Tara. Tara reads right. a lot of history. Okay. So, yeah. So for me, you know, honestly, it was, uh, I had my own apprehensions, but the right. way you wrote it, Ira, it was very accessible. I'm so glad to hear that because really I wanted to make it accessible to somebody who may not necessarily feel normally that they would pick up a big book of uh, history, you know? Yeah. So, Ira, you know, since you do so much, you know, I can uh, imagine the kind of energy that is spent into, you know, writing these books. And then, you know, you have to talk about them like you're doing on this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> you know. So, do you, do you ever face uh, creative burnout? Because that is something that I uh, struggle with myself and I've always yes. wanted to know, especially for a writer, like a scholar like you, you know, who yeah. deals with such a dense subject. How, yes. how do you manage that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a two part to that. Um, in one is the process of uh, talking to people about the books, because now, you know, it's not enough to be a writer, you have to sell your book as well. Um, and part of that is, you know, readers wanting to know about you wanting to know about the writing process about how you've written your book, that's, uh, these are very valid questions that they have, and you have to be able to answer all of these questions. So, Talking about a book is relatively easy in the uh, in the early stages, I would say, when it is a, still a fresh uh, part of your you know work, when you're excited yourself about bringing this book out to, into the world, answering people's questions. Um, it is more when it becomes you know when like for example, Daughters of the Sun. I'm still being asked you know to do webinars on Daughters of the Sun two years <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. But but isn't it good in a way, Ira, that you're reliving your book? Yes, yes, of course it is good in a way. Um, and also now I'm reliving it side by side with Akbar, you know, so there's a different layer to it. I can see it in a different, uh, through a different prism, if you like. Um, but you can get burnout in the sense that you feel, okay, I've said this all before to people. Do they really want to know? Do I have to think of something new to tell people, you know? So you sometimes start feeling that about the... Um, the talk part of it. And in terms of creative burnout, uh, the problem now with the pandemic is that usually at this stage, I would take a complete break. You know, once the book is out, I would take a complete break from uh, reading and writing and research. And I would uh, ideally be traveling because that's for me is a very important, it's the main part of taking a break is being in a different environment. Uh, yeah. Any place which has a lot of history to it, a lot of art to it, it is wonderful. Uh, I went to wow. and th and that can also help your future writing. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, you can find ideas everywhere, and you see interconnected histories. You know, when you go to Italy in in, in Venice, and you see, uh, you know, a particular carpet which I did, which had come from India, on which Humayun may have sat. I mean, it was such an extraordinary moment for me, and I was like, oh my goodness, the you know, histories are really interconnected, and we have to think of history more in terms of how we also, uh, you know, reached out to other cultures and other worlds. So. Travel is very much part of the creative process, but it is one that allows you to breathe and forget about books and, and writing for a while. So right now, I'm not obviously getting to do that. So it's like everybody else, you know, it's um, a hothouse environment. You are only doing uh, continuing with, with work, which can be a little tiring.
So what do you do to substitute how in this pandemic are you what are you doing to substitute that part of your process you know So you know unfortunately no I'm not being as I've gone straight into work and um, into research for another book and um, can we can we ask what that book is about <laughs> Well, <laughs> I haven't made up my mind. I've uh, taken, oh, I've already gone through two ideas, done research, and and uh, you know trashed them. So at the moment, I am looking at uh, the 18th century. So I've gone later. Uh, I mean, closer to us in time. Uh, I'm looking at different courts. So I probably won't be doing the Mughals this time, um, and maybe uh, more towards Awadh and Lucknow and how those courts evolved. What were the influences that they were going through in the 18th century as the Mughal Empire disintegrated and the Europeans sort of started to take over? So I'm looking. I'm reading around that sort of subject right now. Sounds fascinating. Um, you know, you you do so much. You're researching and you're writing, and then you're doing things like this, where you're promoting your book, <laughs> um, and then you know you mentioned your daughters. So you know, Michelle and I also sort of we multitask a lot because yeah. we we run bound, you know, and so there's right. many different things that we're doing. Um, right. So I wanted to hear from you. You know, how do you manage your time? You know, I uh, am terrible about managing time. I don't know. I just do everything. I think to excess. Uh, it's just in my personality. You know, uh, when my kids were small and uh, I was basically raising my daughters, I was doing things in a crazy manner. You know, I would organize their birthdays and make you know everything by hand. All the decorations, the food. I drove myself insane. It's just. a personality type you know yeah yeah i think being sincere to whatever you're doing exactly yeah. you do it just fully you think okay nobody else is going to do this as well and i am going to do this you know which is silly it can you you know if you can also outsource a little bit it's a good idea but that's just how i function so now when i'm working which is i think why i've managed to write three books in a relatively short amount of time you know considering these are books on history it is relatively a short amount of time five years for three books so i think it's because i do nothing else and at lunchtime today my daughter was discussing this and she was saying let's talk about one interesting fact we've discovered about each other and she says mama oh. about uh, yeah she says she says mama about you have discovered that you are very hard working because she's not in school yeah. and she can't see what i'm doing normally now she's yeah. here and i'm always at my desk and she's like okay you oh, work really hard it's so sweet <laughs> every writer we spoken to who is successful and who's we got on this podcast <laughs> I talked about hard work, and I think that's a very good motivation. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you know it's not just talent. Actually, hard work is the most Absolutely. important. Yeah. Yes, it sounds cliche, but yeah, yeah, it is hundred <laughs> percent. You know, there's no getting away from it. Of course, so you know, talent can can get people very far, but you do need to have that uh, just that work ethic. I think. Okay, so Ira, we are going to do a quick rapid fire round now. Okay. Yeah, Tara, you can ask. Yeah, all right. Okay, who is the one character from all your books that you would invite to dinner? Oh, good question. Um, I would uh, ask for an exception and make it two. And I would, uh, I would ask for Birbal because he was such a quick wit and good at repartee, so he would keep us amused. And for Badawi, who used to always criticize him, so I would say face to face, you know, go ahead and say what you have to each other. It would be highly entertaining. Wow! Even I would love to have dinner with Birbal. <laughs> what about Let's you, Tara? Let's all have this dinner party together. Please invite us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we would have a blast. <laughs> yeah. So, Ira, do you have a writing desk? I do. Yes, I do. 
And what does it look like? Oh, it's terribly messy. Uh, I'm not one of those people who is very well organized and who keeps many, you know, neat notes and all that. So I have piles and piles of books and notebooks in which I take notes. And uh, somehow, luckily, it makes sense to me. And I have told everybody not to mess around, not to try and tidy it up because there's order in the chaos. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what are some of the books, maybe one or two books that you loved as a child? Oh, as a child. Uh, wow. Um, I guess there's no getting away from, you know, Enid Blyton, if you have a childhood in Delhi. And I love those uh, magic faraway trees. Uh, oh, me you know, too. Series, yeah. yeah, Secret 7, Famous 5, <laughs> seven, all that. Yeah, yeah. And the Narnia books. I remember really C.S. Lewis really enjoying those and thinking that this is, you know, uh, something different altogether. Oh, so what those... about Harry Potter? Ira, we love Harry Potter. <laughs> you, oh, you, <laughs> I haven't read any, I'm afraid. My oh, kids have though, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ira, what is your one favorite food that you could bring back from history? Oh, well, um, I think because of all the controversy, it would have to be biryani to see exactly what it looked and tasted like uh, from from the Mughal times. Oh, nice. <laughs> So what is the one character from your books that you think would do really well in the 21st century? You know, well, in the 21st century, I would have to say Akbar because he was just uh, such an extraordinary uh, person in the sense of adapting to change all the time. Uh, nothing seemed to throw him off. He was very resilient. Uh, he found a way around everything. And he was, uh, you know, he used to tinker with the objects all the time. I think he would find the internet fascinating and you, there's nothing you could teach him about uh, image on social media right he was the king of his image uh, image making and symbolism so i think he would do very well in the 21st century that's interesting i wonder what it would be like if all of these characters had their own instagram account <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah would they be narcissists you know i think all of us i think all of us are in a way <laughs> so ira what are you interests apart from reading and writing uh, well one long term interest which uh, you know will make me sound like a horrible old fogey is gardening actually i've always loved it and i find it rejuvenates me and it's it's incredibly creative uh, and and traveling, as I was mentioning earlier. So I really do love traveling um, and I miss it very much in, in lockdown. I'm looking forward to, to, uh, to traveling as soon as I can. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah, gardening is something I wouldn't have thought of. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I have a couple of friends who, you know, are really passionate about gardening and I've always, yes. you know, been curious oh, about it? it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know anyone else who, who, who's into gardening. I guess because we don't have space, you know. See, in Bombay, I think you don't have space, but... If you can have a garden, it is something that grows on you. It's like golf addiction or poker or something. It really gets it hooks into you. And, uh, you know, you become uh, just a lifelong uh, passionate gardener. It's it's very peaceful. You know, it's a very peaceful uh, hobby and uh, very satisfying. And I grow um, vegetables in my vegetable, small veg terrace vegetable garden. And it's really, really wonderful. Sounds fantastic. You must send us a picture. <laughs> I will. <laughs> So, you know, uh, Ira, thank you so much thank for you to you. this podcast. It was amazing. We got so many interesting insights and we just love your stories. Fantastic. Thank I you. That we can just listen to your stories all day long. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, and thanks yeah. so much for putting, uh, uh, uncovering the voice of women. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. So that was Ira Mukhuti giving us so many interesting stories about historical figures. 
ever since I had read her book Daughters of the Sun, I always wanted to know how she created these fascinating female characters. And now we found out. Yeah, and on our next episode, we are going to be talking to Radhika Vaz. I can't believe that we are going to talk to her because I have been following her comedy like since forever. And I loved her book, Unladylike. If you haven't read her book, please check it out. It is the most honest memoir that I have read. Yeah, and superbly funny as well. But of course. So tune in next time to our podcast, Books and Beyond with Bound. We are available on at Bound India on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. As always, if you have any feedback or any suggestions, please do write to us. And thank you so much for your support. See you next time.